0: John Glazer.: My guest today is Robert E. Kelly, professor of political science at Pusan University in South Korea. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I want to start the conversation out by reviewing what happened to U.S. policy towards North and South Korea during the Trump administration. You wrote a paper about this, uh, describing the persistent status quo with North Korea, that though the Trump administration swung wildly from hawkish to dovish, we didn't see any real change in results. Can you explain why the status quo in North Korea is so persistent?
1: Yeah, that's actually a great question. I mean, the observation I often have when I sort of read stuff about North Korea, you know, they have like subtitles, like sort of like a peninsula in transition or sort of Korea in transition. And I think we sort of default to speak in that kind of way because we want to make things sound like they're new or they're interesting. You know, we're entering a new era and that kind of talk. Um, that that kind of language is sort of very common, uh, particularly in, in journalism. And and I often find actually when I in in reading about North Korea is actually is, um, what I, what often strikes me is how North Korea doesn't change. How North Korea actually isn't really turning a corner or entering a new era or doing things. That, that actually the North Korea in my sense is you know that that North Korea is is pretty much governed the same way it has been really for for decades. Arguably, I think since the 1960s. I mean, others have written about this and know North Korea's domestic politics than, better than I do. But, I mean, North Korean foreign policy, I think, hasn't really wavered too much or hasn't really changed too much. I think the status quo, That now to get more specifically to why the peninsula status quo is pretty sunk in, I think both sides have accustomed themselves and accommodated themselves to it. I mean, it's now been, what, 75 years since 1945 that the the division, 77 years, right? The division has been in place. The two states have really sort of grown distinctly and the long, you know, into sort of distinct Entities, obviously, there's a sort of shared cultural substrate, but 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 politically and and, and militarily and increasingly socially, they are becoming distinct. Um, You can see that in sort of South Korean polling about uh, North Korea, where increasingly South Koreans see North Korea as like a separate country. Um, And this is sort of and and we have sort of uh, some experience with this in in the case of Germany, for example, where East and West Germany were in fact beginning to significantly grow apart. And and I've often thought that the Germans kind of got lucky that German unification happened when it did, because there are enough. Older Germans still a lot West Germans still alive that they were able to, uh, that there was enough sort of hangover of national unif- unities sort of push for, for unification when the window opened in the late 80s. And I wonder if that's going to be the case in Korea where the division continues to sort of, you know, go on and on and on. At some point, the two generations are just going to, the two sides are just going to grow really apart and see one another as distinct states. And so I think the the political division is is pretty deeply rooted. It's been there for what seventy seven years now. The, the that that difference is being reinforced by uh, um, other differences, most obviously social, that the two populations are growing up um, differently, with with different expectations about what government does, and different expectations about how they lead their lives, and you know how they economically interact with one another, and things like that. And um, and I think that uh, and so so they so it's it's hard I think to overcome that increasing separation. Um, so more specifically, politically, I think um, is that North Korea doesn't really want to change a great deal. That 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 the North Korean elite is actually pretty comfortable with the status quo. I do not actually believe, in the language of IR theory, of international relations theory, I do not actually believe that North Korea is a revisionist state anymore, even though it is formally and technically both sides are sort of formally constitutionally revisionist states, which is to say they make claims against the other. But in fact, the constant that the status quo, I think, works for for both sides. Relatively well, at least on the North Korean side, it works for regime elites very well. And then I think for for South Koreans, again, I think they just sort of accustomed themselves to it. And so you're sort of colliding with decades and decades of, of entrenched division, where you know major groups inside society have configured themselves around this, and it makes it harder and harder to change. Um, and so you know I think and Trump really sort of collided with that, I, and and sort of Moon Jae-in. I think they just sort of collided with these long-standing interests that you know, really don't actually want change unless it's sort of understood as sort of surrender or something like that, right? I mean, South Korea would like change if North Korea surrenders, but that's not going to happen. Same thing, you know, on on, on on the North Korean side. And so I think the, you know, the, the division is just sort of, it's it's sunk in. It's, it's sort of, it's granulating down into both societies to the point where really big breakthrough changes are very, very difficult. Um, This is why in my writing, I've argued for a long time that we should not be shooting for a big bang deal between the two Koreas. It's just too difficult. There's no Nixon goes to China moment, I think, waiting in the wings. There's no Camp David moment waiting in the wings where you can bring two enemies that have been you know, apart for a while and reconcile them with some kind of big breakthrough diplomacy. I just do not believe that is possible in the Korean case. I think the differences that we've discussed here are just too sunk in. And instead, I think I've argued for a long time we should go for small deals right sort of like little piecemeal things the north koreans give us like a warhead and we give them a sanctions rollback or a pile of money or something i don't know i mean we can get into that but but i've argued for a long time that 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 just a big bang deal is just beyond it's just it's just it's a bridge too far um because the status quo is is so deeply set can you
0: talk a little bit before i pull on some of those threads can you can you describe how you see the trump administration's various overtures towards north korea i mean First, it was fire and fury and really kind of unprecedented threats. And then it was uh, excessive, what you might call dovishness. I mean, of a sort, right. certain it was, it was right. certainly not a um, concentrated uh, strategy. Um, right. But what did North Korea kind of learn from this? Can you kind of go through that and, and tell us how it, how it ended up?
1: Yeah, so I actually in my writing, I think with one of my graduate students, I wrote an article, which I I argued that the I called the Trump administrational operational doves, I think is the term I used. I wrote that like three or four years ago. And the the argument was sort of what you were saying, right? Which is that I don't think anybody really thinks that Donald Trump is a dove, right? And that doesn't sort of strike anybody as a normal interpretation of the guy. But in practice, when it actually came to dealing with North Korea, he was in fact more dovish in policy and actual in operation than really any previous US president, which is to say that he was willing to meet with the North Korean supreme supreme leader, which is something really no other American president had ever done, and he looked at least he signaled for a while in his rhetoric that he was willing to make concessions or seemed to be willing to make concessions. Again, it's hard to know because Trump was so erratic. Um, uh, um, okay, and so uh, and that and, and so all I mean erratic, I suppose, is the word that I would primarily use to define the Trump administration. I mean, I was I was pretty critical of the of the Trump outreach. Um, my sense, and honestly, my sense to be to be very blunt, I, I think Trump was really doing it for domestic politics. I, I genuinely believe that Trump was doing this because he saw this as a possible win. Right? We know Trump's like wins the perception that he did something sort of amazing. I think that Trump was sort of very jealous that Barack Obama got a Nobel Prize, and Barack Obama made fun of him at that press dinner or something or other like that, and, and he really sort of disliked Obama. He really loathed him, and Obama had a Nobel Prize. So he had that Nobel Prize, too, to prove that he was better than Obama, and he could go and get one in in Korea, and I think a lot of it, honestly, I think a lot of the effort was driven by by Trump and his own sort of personal interest in, in sort of prestige and, and 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 validation and approval by the press corps and things like that. And if you actually look at his press conferences after the three summits with Kim Jong-un, he spends lots of time talking about how the press is going to write about it and not a whole lot of time talking about the strategic issues. Um, and so I think that was actually one of the reasons why it didn't work. I think Trump came into it for all the wrong reasons and it undercut his 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 efforts repeatedly. Um. So, uh, you know, if you again, if you if you sort of look at the if you look at the the press conferences, it's pretty clear that Trump often didn't really sort of understand the issues. If you if you listen to his if you listen to his speeches back in the day, he was often sort of confused about, like, what exactly nuclear weapons were and how ballistic missiles worked and stuff like that. I mean, he he just didn't really spend a lot of time on this. And if you compare that to, say, like Nixon and Kissinger working on China or Jimmy Carter working on the Camp David Accords or uh, Bill Clinton working on on um, the Camp David effort again in 2000, if that effort failed, be sure. But if you look at those three as sort of uh, examples of kind of big breakthrough deal for which Trump, I think, was shooting. I think those were sort of arguably the models, to the extent Trump had a model in mind at all. I mean, one of the things is that there was a major bureaucratic process behind that. The president himself was personally involved. The president steered the bureaucracy. The president actually read about these things. I mean, it's pretty clear that Nixon and Kissinger, like, knew a lot about China. And they, like, you know, I don't know specifically, but I imagine they actually read histories of China. And, you know, and then Jimmy Carter did the same thing. I mean, they put an effort into it. I mean, even Bill Clinton did. You know, it's pretty clear that Bill Clinton put a lot of effort in. It did, Again, it didn't work, but there was a process there. And I think that's really what undercut Trump. Is he just? It just was so, you know, it was just so half-assed. I mean, it was just so flying by the seat of your pants. I mean, we know from John Bolton's book um, that Trump didn't prepare for his first meeting in, in, in Singapore. I mean, he literally just got on the plane, flew into Singapore, got off. I'm like, I'm here, dude. Let's talk about, you know, it's like, you know, it's like his sort of like New York, Manhattan socialite. I'm going to be on the front page of the New York Post kind of stick. Hey, man, I, you know, and, and, and you can do that back home, I guess, in the New York socialite world. I mean, I don't know anything about that. But I mean, that I guess that shtick worked for Trump for a while. But I mean, that's just not going to work in in diplomacy. And it was really clear, I think, with the big, big buildup to the the summit back in, I think it was in June 2018. You know, for three or four months, there was this big, big buildup. And I was being invited to go on TV shows. And they're like, is Donald Trump going to win Nobel one Nobel Prize or two, the second one was going to be for Iran. You know, are we, are we going to like withdraw from the Korean Peninsula by the end of the year because Trump was going to make peace? I mean, there's just this enormous talk up, this big sort of build up that we're like on the cusp of this major breakthrough. And then if you actually look at the deal that, that Trump got out of Kim Jong-un in July and in June of that year is basically like a nothing burger. I mean, basically nothing changed. And I think it really, I think the whole mess really speaks more to Trump and his Failures, quite honestly, to be a, uh, as a statesman, his inability to discipline himself, his inability to focus, his inability to manage the policy process, right? His inability to control his feuding subordinates. It's very clear, for example, that Pompeo and Bolton didn't want the deal. Um, uh, it, it's very clear. So we also know that his family was actually, Ivanka and, and Jared were nervous about Trump doing this. They thought he was going to get taken for a ride. Um, and so I think Trump just wasn't able to sort of like bring a coherent White House policy process, much less reach out to the wider community, Congress, the Defense Department, the analyst community. You know, Trump was never really able to bring those people on board. And so I think this is why ultimately the the, the, the engagement with North Korea sort of failed because there was Trump at the top as POTUS, and he's obviously a super important actor in American foreign policy, but everything else wasn't there. There was no sort of buildup. There was no kind of support for this larger process. So when Trump himself got annoyed with it and bored with it and dropped it in, I think, what, late 2019, after the third summit, the one at the MC The whole thing just collapsed because there was no bureaucratic support. There was no momentum behind it at all, right? The military was very wary about it. The State Department was like, eh, we don't really know either. The MLS community came out quite harshly behind it because... You know, a lot of people like me, I mean, people way more important than me, we're all like, you know, Trump, it's just like, you know, it's just kind of silly. He doesn't know what he's doing. I think Victor Cha called it like drive-by diplomacy. You know, Trump just got off the plane and whatever. And so, and you know, Congress was very, very nervous about this, right? And so there was just no real support for this, ironically, other than uh, here in South Korea from the South Korean left. Um, You know, that's actually a point a lot of people don't actually know. South Korean progressives actually like Donald Trump because he was willing to meet with Kim Jong-un. But South Korean conservatives were also very concerned that Trump was going to like give away the farm and stuff, and I think that's ultimately why it, it it collapsed. Right, the status quo is very deeply sunk. Right, you've got powerful groups on both sides that have accommodated themselves to the division and and are thriving or working with it and are nervous of big big changes, and and Trump came in and just didn't put in the work. Quite honestly, he just wasn't serious enough about it. Um, I do I do think I do think that a more serious American statement would actually be able to sort of make a a deal with North Korea. I do continue to believe that a deal is possible, but it would take someone like Obama or Bill Clinton, someone who genuinely believes in diplomacy, which is a real problem on the American right. You know, the American right today, I think doesn't really believe in diplomacy that much anymore. Right. So it probably have to be a Democrat. And it would take someone who really actually put in the work. And again, I think the hope has always been on the South Korean left that you would have like a big summit, Uh, between the North Koreans and the Americans, and that would be like this breakthrough moment. The South Korean left has sort of banked on that idea for about 30 years. But they always envisioned it to be someone like Obama, you know, someone who really was sort of like a peacemaker and was like interested in substantive issues and wanted this for itself rather than Trump, who was sort of erratic and was, I think, pretty obviously doing it quite honestly just for the vanglory. I think he wanted... A Nobel, so you could sort of wave it in the air and say, "I got it, and I'm great, and 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 you love me because you know I made peace, and you should reelect me." And and and, and I think once he began to see there was actually really work to get a deal in North Korea, he's like, "Oh, it's too much effort." You know, Trump was kind of lazy, right? You know, executive time, he's watching TV every morning in the White House until noon, and he just he just he just dropped it once he realized how hard it was.
0: You mentioned something that I, I do want to follow up on. Um... Because at the beginning you said you know you tend to talk about smaller deals and uh, put aside the the idea of a big grand bargain that would solve everything. But as you said, you know, if if there were a a president say that um, was serious and approached this in a serious way, and if you had the luck of a South Korean president from the left to make that approach all cohesive. I wonder if I can impose upon you to give us a sense of what you think a constructive framework for compromise and mutual accommodation would be if we were kind of aiming for that grand deal.
1: Yeah, so this has been an idea, the idea of like a summit to break through that entrenched status quo. The idea of a summit to break through that has been a particular idea on the South Korean left going back to at least the 1990s, right? One of the reasons why the status quo is entrenched is that the South Korean right is comfortable with it which is to say the South Korean right wants Southern-led unification and they want North Korea to collapse in the same way East Germany did. Right? The South Korean left is more ambiguous, right? The South Korean left is more willing to say North Korea is a, is a sort of brother Korean state. They're like us. They, they've sort of lost their way under totalitarianism and the Cold War and American pressure and the bombing. The, the the U.S. bombing of North Korea is often referenced as a reason why North Korea has slid into Orwellianism. Um, and so the argument is, you know, and, and we can sort of like reach out to North Korea and bring them in from the cold. Right. That 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 isolating them, deterring them, containing them, chasing them around, you know, chasing their money around in banks and stuff like that and chasing their diplomats all over the place, all over the world. That this is kind of productive and it just makes North Korea more and more paranoid and more and more hostile. Um, I, I don't know if I buy that entirely, but I'm willing to sort of I kind of get it. And and so I think the the the, the policy argument eminent from this from the from this argument made again mostly by the South Korean left. You don't hear this in the Western analyst community much, but mostly here, uh, the argument is that uh, you know the 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 status quo is too sunken, right? It's too ossified, it's too sclerotic, right? And what we need is a sort of Alexandrine sort of strike to you know cut the the the, the Gordian knot in one clean stroke, right? And the 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 Gordian knot there, the sword there. The Alexandrian sword is going to be uh, a summit of of the leaders, particularly the leaders of North Korea and South Korea, right? And uh, that is why there was so much excitement here about Trump, and there was so much support for it. And this is why Moon Jae-in was like, I mean, literally, Moon Jae-in was like whispering to Trump's ear, you know, oh, if you do this, you're going to get a Nobel Prize. It'll be this great statesman. I mean, it was kind of an open secret here in South Korea that Moon was flattering Trump, and you know, he's like the Trump whisperer, stuff like that. You know, and and in the U.S., people were like, oh, you know, Trump is going to do this breakthrough. and He's got a Nobel Prize. Nobody here in Korea, I think, actually really believed that. I think it was the sense instead is that, you know, we can get a breakthrough in North Korea and if we have to butter Trump up and and and, and flim-flam him and, and con him into thinking that he's Gandhi or Martin Luther King or something. We'll do that in order to get the guy in the room. Um, and, and it worked. They got him in the room. Um, but but Trump didn't prepare. And so I think that's one of the reasons what all kind of fell apart. Um, so what would it look like if it was like Obama? you know, for as Bill Clinton, if you actually had sort of like a major summit in which you had an American president who prepared. Um, I think there are a couple of things. The most important thing is there would have to be some kind of discussion about nuclear weapons, right? The North Koreans would have to move at least somewhat on nuclear weapons and the Americans would have to make some pretty major concessions on that. One of the reasons why we're not talking to North Koreans at all right now is because the North Koreans have increasingly become unwilling to discuss nuclear weapons or missiles really at all. Now, I agree with Jeffrey Lewis and some of these others who said this? I said this on CNN the other day. You know that that we're probably going to have to learn to live with North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. I mean, in practice, we already have, right? I mean, North Korea has been a nuclear weapon state since 2016, and they've been able to strike Conus, the continental United States, since 2017. And we have not, in fact, bombed North Korea or done any of these things. We keep saying, you know, uh, North Korea with nuclear ICBMs is intolerable, but we have, in fact, learned to live with it now for the last five years. And so there's an argument that we can make that concession. We can formally make that concession. You are, in fact, a nuclear weapon state. Right. But um, uh, uh, that would require some kind of counter concession from from North Korea. That would require some kind of, we would have to get something back. for that. this is my concern about Jeffrey Lewis's argument in The New York Times the other day. OK, if we're going to my argument always is if we're going to do this kind of stuff. If we're going to give up sanctions. We got to get something. If we're gonna give up nuclear weapons status, we're gonna accept that, we should get something. If we're gonna formally recognize North Korea and have like consulates and an embassy, then we should get something in exchange for, it, right? I mean, we should do deals and swaps, and it should be in the language, again, sort of to think of IR here, you know, in the language of Kohane, it should be it should not be diffuse reciprocity because there's not enough strategic trust. So it's gotta be specific reciprocity, it's gotta be point for point, A for B. And it's got to be very clearly written out in long, long sentences, with, you know, in long, long documents where we can go through and like check every single individual point. And if we can do that and the stakes are small, right? Again, sort of IR here, right? Functionalism, right? We can sort of build slowly towards bigger deals. And that I think is where uh, a dedicated American leader could really do a breakthrough, right? You could actually sit in the room with the North Koreans, and maybe because it's summit, it's leader to leader, that initial small deal could maybe be a little bit bigger than it might otherwise be. Um, I do think that even a summit with someone like Obama makes a big bang deal impossible. I think a big bang deal is beyond our ability. But I do think that a summit could probably get a little bit more than what you might get from, from diplomats meeting around the UN. Um, uh, the, the North Koreans want that. The, the reason I make that argument is because we know the North Koreans want the prestige of meeting POTUS. And this is something that the North Koreans wanted for a while, right? That was one of the reasons why a lot of hawks, including me, were very sort of nervous about Trump going to meet North Korea without any concessions, because the, I, I would argue that the prestige of meeting an American president three times as a tin pot dictator. I mean, the North Koreans are like the most Orwellian awful regime on the planet. So if they get to meet POTUS. We ought to get something for it. And, and, and Trump didn't do that, I think. And I, I would argue that was that was an error. So. I think a a more dedicated American president could sort of make the argument to the U.S. public, right, which Trump really never did. Trump's speeches about North Korea were very erratic and bizarre. Um, Trump could make a pitch to Congress. He'd actually get up and give like like a speech to Congress and say, you know, here's this country, which we have understood as an enemy for all these years, but now we need to rethink our foreign policy towards them, and here's my plan, and, you know, we're going to reach out to North Koreans and make a series of sort of swaps and deals. Trump could try to reach, uh, uh, an Obama figure could reach out to um, the analyst community, to the State Department, to the chunks of the bureaucracy, you know, state, defense, and stuff, um, the intelligence community—that would be very nervous about that. These are all things Trump didn't do, right? There's again, I've, I've, if you read my stuff in preparation for this, I, you know, we talked about this. All this is in there. I mean, I've been making this these kinds of arguments for a while. That 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 Trump failed because he built no coalition. Curiously enough, Trump was reliant on the South Korean left here. <laughs> that was really the only public support he he had, and it just didn't work at home, where he was just criticized relentlessly in the media. And so any kind of Obama figure would have to do that. He would have to sort of show up, be ready to go, have some kind of specific deals and some ability to sort of like swap and trade. Right. One reason why the Hanoi deal fell apart was because Trump didn't actually know very much about what was going on. So once the North Koreans rejected it, Trump didn't really understand enough of what the stakes were to actually get into a back and forth and a tit for tat bargain. That's one of the reasons why Pompeo and and Bolton were able to undercut him because Trump didn't understand enough of the issues much well enough to push back on his own staff, who's was very, a lot of his staff was very hawkish and didn't want to deal at all. And Trump also didn't know enough to engage Kim Jong-un personally over the table. Instead, just, you know, Trump threw a tantrum and literally stormed out of the room. I and mean, that was our big chance for a breakthrough. Kim actually brought a deal to the table. It was a terrible deal, by the way, but he did bring something. Trump also brought a deal, which was also terrible, but at least they were both there. And that was the big moment. And Trump completely blew it because he just wasn't, you know, ready either to deal with his own you know, on his own side of the table, with his own opponents on, on, on his own side of the table, and with the to really engage in back and forth with the North Koreans. I guarantee you Kim Jong-un was far, far better prepared for that meeting than Trump. So that's what though those are the elements I think of of, of a kind of Nixon goes to China kind of moment. Trump would come in, you know, the, the the figure would come, Obama or whatever, I know Biden, whoever it might be, would come in really ready to go with a lot of good information, would have groomed some kind of domestic coalition or at least laid some kind of groundwork for our, for a deal so you're not just sort of pulling it out of a hat right and and then also working with you know we'd have to work with with partners over here too which is something we haven't discussed at all but i mean trump really alienated the south koreans by going on tv and like attacking them and i mean trump has said that like moon Jae-in was like horrible president moon Jae-in. And, and and he wants to blow up the alliance and stuff like that. And so, you know, I mean, Trump doesn't have a lot of sympathy out here in Korea among the relevant national security communities. Right. There's a lot of anxiety that Trump wants to abandon South Korea. And so, you know, there's a there's a lot of groundwork that a more serious president would do. Um, and, and but I think if that was done, then a more serious president might actually be able to make some concessions that will be hard for our side to swallow, accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapons state, giving up some sanctions, um letting north korea into international financial institutions that's an idea that you floated around as a concession letting north korea into the imf of the world Bank so they actually borrow at um um, uh, um, below market interest rates for for internal development okay maybe um might work if they would be willing to pay it back probably wouldn't though they probably cheat so i mean you know but we we can you know i mean so making those concessions you're gonna have to say you're gonna have to pitch that stuff you're gonna have to sell that stuff to the hawks back home you know, to the to the generals and and, and to the analysts and and uh, a more serious politician, I think, might be able to convincingly argue to opponents back home. I can get real stuff out of the North Koreans, and he could actually bring a list of here the things the North Koreans are going to give us. They're going to give us like five nuclear warheads. So we can cut them open and look at what they have, or they're going to like give us you know like a third of their 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 tells, their transporter reactor the launchers. Again, I don't know what it might be, but 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 that that's that I think is what a a more mature summit might have actually captured us.
0: You wrote in a co-authored paper that North Korea's, uh, the, the failure of that approach, basically the, the the failure of Trump and Moon's dovish outreach, is likely to push the overshot window of acceptable counter-North Korea policy options rightward. Uh, can you explain why you think that? Because I can see it going both ways, actually.
1: So so like I said, I think the, the, the left wing, the sort of left wing, particularly South Korean progressive, but also some Western analysts. Um, the left-wing sort of critique for a long time has been, you know, the, the the hawkish approach to North Korea doesn't work. It's it's this ossified confrontation. It's just getting worse and worse. Everybody's arming, right? You have all these sort of, like, deeply entrenched uh, interest groups, you know, hawkish analysts in the military and you know, the defense uh, industrial complex and stuff like that, right? And they're all sort of, like, you know, it's this sort of ossified, rigid, rigid sort of frozen sort of um, uh, standoff, and we need sort of, like, this big thing, right? And so we're going to have, like, uh, the, the summit that's going to like radically change things, radically change things. And that, and that, that I think arguably, you know, Trump was was sort of that guy. And certainly Moon Jae in wanted to be that guy. It's very clear that Moon Jae in had absorbed that narrative. I and mean, that's where I'm getting this from, really, because you don't hear this in the West. This is really what you hear, what we heard during the moon period. And that was going to be Moon Jae in's big thing, right? He was going to really sort of like, there's going to be like a gestalt shift, right? We we're going to like rethink the the peninsula. Instead of North Korea being like a fearsome Orwellian tyranny, it would be understood as a developing country who needed our assistance or something like that. Okay, well, that I would argue that, I mean, that that didn't work. I don't think Trump and Moon really got anything out of North Korea. I mean, empirically, there's been really no change on the peninsula at all. The North Koreans could have done some small stuff at the DMZ to signal sort of goodwill. They could have pulled back artillery, for example, which don't really need so much anymore because they have nuclear weapons and they didn't do it. Okay. And so my thinking was, Daniel, for 30 years, progressives have told us this is the breakthrough moment. And we did it. And we had six summits. Moon met Kim three times. Trump met Kim three times for like two or three years there. We were talking about like peace on the peninsula. And we're in this new era and everything else. And Moon Jae-in released all this literature here in South Korea, talking about himself as a peacemaker and Korea is going to be changed forever and all this. And really nothing came out of it. And my read was that hawks are going to see this and say, we told you. You sit down with the North Koreans and they're just not going to be serious about it. They're just going to gimmick these negotiations. The North Koreans are just going to take the, the prestige benefits from the meeting. They're going to take the pictures and go home. And so my thinking was that what this would do is it would sort of it would damage the progressive argument that a big bang deal is possible at, at, at the summit level. And that would push the entire policy option debate to the right. Now, to a certain extent, that argument for the rightward shift of the Overton window is undercut by the fact that Trump was never serious about it right? If Obama did it and it failed, I think there'd be a much sharper move to the right. Okay. I think progressives can argue correctly that Trump was never serious. The whole thing was ridiculous. Anyway, Moon Jae-in was a, a good counterparty, but Trump was just, you know, Trump was just a clown, right? And so, you know, the, 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 the idea of sort of like a summit-driven breakthrough, that policy option has not been disproven. Um, that's kind of, and so anyway, so I thought My sense was that because of that, that would sort of open further options. The option I was actually thinking of was that increasingly we might quarantine North Korea. I was actually thinking that we might actually, because sanctions enforcement is a big problem. And I've heard a little bit um, that this is actually something that we might start thinking about, right? Because we're worried about the inflow of of, of weapons and parts and stuff like that. We've had a lot of trouble getting Russia and China to cooperate on sanctions. Trump and Moon promised us this big breakthrough and a Nobel Prize and everything else. Nothing came about it came out of it, North Korea looks incorrigible, so we have to start thinking about more aggressive options. And the thing that I had heard for a while there was sort of well, maybe we're going to do like a sort of like Cuban Missile-style, crisis-style quarantine or something like that. I, I think I was wrong. It seems to to me that that was incorrect. Instead, I think the, you see this rightward Overton window shift in South Korea increasing in the nuclear discussion, right? There is now increasingly a debate in South Korea about building their own nuclear weapons. And I think that is also a, a, a sort of sort of conservative backlash to 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 what happened with with Moon and 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 Trump. Um I did I, I have to say I did not anticipate that that South Korean opinion would be so supportive of nuclear weapons so rapidly. Um I like I said I, I thought it was going to be a little bit a little bit lower than that. You know, the new president for example talked about like airstrikes on North Korea. Um that's another example. I like I said I I had kind of thought of quarantine because I actually think that might actually be directly useful in terms of cutting off North Korea's imports. Because we had so much trouble with sanctions, enforcement, But anyway, all those are sort of like more conservative or hawkish options that, you know, like five years ago, nobody would have talked about. And I think those options have been, those aren't great options, and there are a lot of problems with all of them. But all of those, I think, have been unlocked. They have received, they, they have greater legitimacy now than they did five years ago because of the perception that Trump and Moon blew it. So that, that's what I was Thinking. And I think that I and I'm writing a paper right now, actually, in which I'm making basically making this argument that that North Korea had its chance with Trump and Moon, and they blew it. And what this has done is this has incentivized South Korea to start building its own or or start agitating to build its own nuclear weapons. That discussion. I've been living in Korea for 15 years. The discussion from South Korea's own indigenous nuclear weapons is more active in the last eight months than all the other time I've been here. This is like amazing. Like I just out of nowhere, this thing has just exploded. And I mean, I'm going to conferences on it. I've been to two conferences already on this, and I'm going to one in the fall. And, and I think this is a direct outcome, of the, a direct response to the, to the failure of 2018-19.
0: Stepping back from the peninsula per se, uh, you recently co-authored a piece with Paul Post in Foreign Affairs, arguing that the data from the Trump years reinforces this idea that, as you guys put it, U.S. allies can be bullied. Can you explain yeah. that,
1: thesis? Yeah, blame blame Paul for the language that's a little more aggressive. <laughs> Don't blame me. But yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, there was, a, so there was a big sort of wave of writing in the, the longer version, the, the, the stuff that got cut away by the peer reviewers. <laughs> the longer version actually had like all these quotations from guys and the authors in, in 2021 after Biden came in. And there was sort of a wave of this writing saying, you know, we have to reach out to the allies. We have to reassure them. Yeah, you know, I think like Timothy Garden Ash wrote this kind of stuff. You know, and and some other people, some other think tanker types and stuff. and um, some stuff on like war in the Rocks or whatever. I don't know. I could dig it all up. anyway. But the, the idea was we had to sort of reassure the allies, you know Trump was so terrible and you know we had to sort of, you know, tell them that we're back. you know America's back, right? I think you know, Biden himself used that expression. and and what what Paul and I both noticed was that a lot of this language was, I would argue, was sort of normative. OK, it's like we want to sort of look like a good partner to the Europeans, but it's not really clear to me that this language of we need to do this, that American alliances are somehow on edge, that like NATO is about to collapse and something like that because Trump is so terrible. Right. I, I just I would not argue that empirically there was actually much support for that, that thesis. Right. I mean, I, that, that, that Trump kind of came in and, and yelled at American allies and, and sort of turned up the volume on the free riding debate. I mean, that's something American you know, sec deaths have been saying for 25 years, I suppose. But, I mean, Trump really turned that up to 11, right? And he came to South Korea and said, you got to quintuple your support or, like, we're leaving, right? And the South Koreans are like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Um, but but Trump basically got away with that. Remember when he, like, didn't he, like, print out, like, an Excel spreadsheet and give it to, like, Angela Merkel and be like, you owe us, like, $15 billion for NATO? <laughs> I think he actually did that, right? And, and and that kind of language provoked a big sort of backlash, you know, sort of in the liberal internationalist community and the European partners and stuff like that. You know, how could you do this? And you know, we're working, we're standing shoulder to shoulder and stuff like that. And but what, what's noticeable is that the European partners didn't really, you know, do much to uh, to 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 soft balance or defect or drift or you know, whatever language you want to use, right? And and again in the, the the fuller version, and I'm hoping Paul and I can actually send it to an academic journal, which is what will be much longer. The fuller version actually goes through. We actually like did, like, uh, content analysis of, like, white papers from a lot of American allies. They basically found no change at all in the language uh, uh, during the Trump years. I mean, I don't think we had, like, one or two lines from, like, some French statement or something like that. But but basically nothing from Chan, nothing from South Korea, nothing from, from Germany. And, and, and leader statements also were all like, you know, well, we need to find a way to get along with them. And, you know, the European response to Trump was to flatter him. You know, European non-governmental elites, right, like the European Council on Foreign Relations and stuff, they pushed back. Right, the non-governmental discussion in Europe was—I mean, obviously they're pretty upset with Trump, right? In the newspapers and stuff like that. But the actual governmental language was much more sort of accommodating or or just ignored him, right? And 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 so that was kind of like a hard test of the willingness of American allies to sort of be hegemonically bullied, and and would they would they quit? Would they defect? Now you could argue that um, one thing that they did was think, well, you know, it's only four years; we just sort of like. Buckle down and sort of hang on and just sort of ride out the storm and whatever. If Trump had been reelected, that would have been a better test because um, then he would have had eight years of Trump and that would have given more space for a more sustained bureaucratic reaction. So to a certain extent, Paul and I are a little bit crippled by that. But but I think if you if you look at the the leader level statements, if you look at budgeting from from a lot of America's allies, there's basically no there's there's very little data to suggest that they were so shocked by Trump that they were considering other options. And so basically Trump was able to get away with with abusing them and, and at, at almost no cost. And that's pretty that that runs directly in the face of a lot of this. We must reassure the allies talk in 2021. I mean, it just collides directly with that sort of liberal internationalist narrative. And Paul and I pointed it out.
0: It's an interesting lesson because it seems to me like the U.S. is actually frequently bending over backwards for allies and partners. I don't think the U.S. has fully grasped the leverage that it has in relationships right. <laughs> with countries like Israel, Saudi Arabia, many European and, and Asian yeah. allies. Um, and we're always trying to, was it Schultz who called it gardening?
1: Yeah, that's right. I think we had that line in the paper, didn't exactly,
0: we? Exactly. Yes. Um, so let's let's talk about sanctions. Um,
1: sure. I know
0: um, there is a certain there's that left side of South Korean politics that we talked about that favor loosening mm-hmm. sanctions on North Korea. Right. Um, and U.S. sanctions have steadily increased and, and tightened on North Korea in recent years, and it certainly hasn't imp- seemed to improve things. I think the scholarly literature on economic sanctions does not paint a very rosy picture of their effectiveness. And, and a lot of analysts suggest that sanctions make diplomacy harder. But you you wrote a paper explicitly trying to make the case for these harsh sanctions. Um, so first, if you can do me a favor and try to describe, give people a sense of what the sanctions are, what are the extent of them, what do they cover, you know, what's restricted, and then make the case that these are actually useful.
1: Okay. So um, initially, the sanctions were targeted on North Korean elites and elite transactions and stuff like that. And trying to go to sort of go after um, uh, uh, elite lifestyles, right? So like one of the, one of the most controversial sanctions, one of the ones that the North Koreans want to get rid of is the luxury ban, right? The luxury goods ban. Um, uh, By the way, there's a great deal of violation of this. When I flew into North Korea, I went to North Korea myself back in 2011 and and you can like see people going from like Chinese, you go flying from Beijing and you can see people going from like Chinese duty-free right, like right onto plain North Korea with like bags and bags of liquor and hair dryers. And so, and we're not, they, you know, it's not really working terribly well, I suppose. Um, and so, and so that was sort of the original idea. And then, oh, I don't have the date exactly in front of me. I want to say in like 2016, 2017, we stepped up to, uh, that's all in the paper here. Um, we yeah. stepped up to what they sometimes call sectoral sanctions, right? Um in which we started sort of blocking off entire chunks of the of the North Korean economy, right? So we made, for example, now it's like basically almost impossible to import metal into North Korea, right? And so, like, you get a lot of pushback from like NGOs and stuff like that, saying, "Well, you know, we can't import medical equipment into North Korea unless we can import metal." And so it's like now it's like illegal to import like uh, like 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 razor blades or 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 paper clips into North Korea and stuff like that, right? And so there's been a big long debate about opt outs and carve outs and stuff like that, um, and some of that is is covered in the in the Ko paper. Um, so, um, the, the, the sanctions have sort of, as you mentioned, they sort of been increasingly ramped up, but there is an argument that previous to sectoral sanctions, I mean, I'm not so much the expert on this, Josh, um, uh, uh, Stanton is really good on this, that actually, and Josh has sort of argued that before sectoral sanctions really started getting cranked up in the last 10 years, um, that, that North Korea is actually not nearly as heavily sanctioned as we think that a lot of the sanctions are actually sort of more narrowly targeted, right. And they've only become sort of broader in the last, know, five or eight years. Um, one of the other big things sort of as a part of the, sort of the effort on, on sectoral sanctions is to go after North Korean money, right, um, which is start chasing North Korean money around, particularly in Chinese and Russian banks. There are limits to how much we can do that, though, because that creates tension with the Chinese and the Russian governments whose elites are often sort of involved with the North Koreans in one way or another. And so we start to expose the corruption in those two countries because of their deals with North Korea, which violate UN sanctions. Um, then uh, that actually has larger costs for the, the relationship with both China and Russia. And so I think this is one reason why, like the Obama administration, for example, ultimately sort of coughed or sort of pulled back the Treasury Department, because they were worried that if we start sort of unveiling, you know, Chinese elites in bed with the North Koreans and stuff like that, it's going to embarrass all these figures in the Chinese government. It's going to start to sort of undercut wider Sino-US debates on on, on things. So. Um, I think those are those are the those are the two sort of big sanctions, right? First, you had sort of the targeted sanctions that were really sort of looking at elites, and then you've sort of gotten this wider, sort of increasingly economy-wide, sort of sectoral sanction effort to basically sort of block the North Koreans off from the entire global economy. Um, Okay, right. So, so the argument for sanctions, um, yeah, I mean, I I think part of it, part of it, part of the sort of idea about like sanctions as as like like are they efficacious or not? I think part of it depends on like what you define as the goal. Right. And if you set up the goal to be and here's where the U.S. rhetoric has been really helpful, unhelpful. Um, you know, when, when Trump went and met Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea back in, um, in uh, or uh, met Kim Jong-un back in Singapore in 2018. Right. The goal then was CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible disarmament. In other words, North Korea would like completely go to zero. That language has since been sort of reimagined as, I think, what fully v- Ffvd, fully verifiable, or something like that. Anyway, CVID. and um, that is basically saying the North Koreans have to give up everything, right? They have to you know, nukes, weapons, uranium mines, facilities, whole. I mean, that's just that's just impossible, right? And so, if you the North Koreans are never going to do that, right? So, if you sort of set, you're, what you're doing is you're kind of setting up sanctions to fail if you insist that sanctions actually have to be like have to sort of like get North Korea to give up everything. Right. I think the, the large the argument, that's sort of the primary argument for sanctions is to sort of squeeze North Korea so that it will eventually return to the negotiating table. And this gives us things to trade for it. In fact, I mean, if you look at the paper that I sort of argue, I actually make the argument at the end that sanctions should not be inviolable. Right. We should, in fact, be willing to give them up if the North Koreans will make some trades and some concessions. Right. I mean, ultimately. You know, if we're going to get a deal with North Korea, we've got to be able to trade things away. And one of the things they really want is sanctions relief. And I'll be honest, I'm actually a little bit surprised that North Koreans have not been willing to, to deal more um, in order to get sanctions relief. But, OK, um, a couple of a couple other things about sort of like why sort of on, on, on sort of goals. Um, I would argue that the the goal of the sanctions really is to sort of like slow. The North Korean march towards nuclear weapons, right? I mean, there's a whole sort of like literature on nuclear proliferation that argues that slowing down proliferation is a pretty good end in itself. And I think one of the things that sanctions did is help sort of retard this problem, and it allowed us to at least shuffle off to the future, kick it, you know, kick the can down the road. Now we're coming to the end of that road, but I think for a while the sanctions did buy us some time, right? They they, they sort of retarded North Korea's ability to build these things and bought us some time. Um, I, I quote a, a paper. In the uh, in the essay, in which I sort of note that sort of if you look at like these projections for North Korea's nuclear futures and stuff like that, you know, there were analysts who were talking the North Koreans can have like two hundred nuclear weapons by like you know like two thousand twenty three or something like that. I can't remember. It's in the paper, um, and, and and it looks like the North Koreans have actually been kept to something like forty or fifty, right? And so there is some arguably counterfactual evidence that the North that the sanctions have at least slowed the march, right? That 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 the North Korean the problem with North Korean nuclear weapons would be even worse if we didn't have the sanctions. Right. So that, I think, is the the strategic argument. So um, we're constricting North Korean economic growth in the strategic interest of South Korea and its partner states. Right. In other words, the the more North Korea grows, right, the the, the more the North Korean economy functions, the more it's able to produce weapons, both conventional for the KPA and uh, uh, WMD as a part of the missile and the nuclear program. Right. And so we're not going to get them to zero. Right. So if you set up sanctions to mean we're going to get the CVID and it's going to be a failure. Right. But we can in fact slow the march. and like I said, there is some there is some I don't data is not the right word here. there's some sort of counterfactual logic which I sort of go through in the paper that suggests this might be the the case, right that that there were a, there were sort of projections that the North Koreans were going to have like hundreds of nuclear weapons and they don't seem to have that um and and it seems like that might be because of sanctions. again, this is all sort of thrashed out in the in the paper.
0: You also discuss that uh, this is a useful way for the international community to express its kind of moral outrage at North Korea's totalitarianism, and that the regime is an outlier in the world, and so on. And if the United States can lead the way in imposing sanctions, that that expresses the international community's, you know, this one I, I find a little tricky. I mean. You appeal to enforcing international law and expressing the international community's moral displeasure, but the international community is not really supposed to be in the business of punishing countries for their domestic governance structures. I think the UN Charter, which is the document that codifies the international community, uh, really established that pretty unambiguously. That That doesn't even get to the contradictory point, the hypocritical point. The United States has always buddied up to pretty vicious regimes. One's much like North Korea and one's much different, but vicious nonetheless. Um, And so that undermines the legitimacy case that these are legitimate to put on for some some normative reason. Um, I think when most people talk about sanctions in a strategic sense, it's can we pressure the other side to come our way in policy, just like you said, trade sanctions relief for something that the you know, that the North Koreans want to give, uh, and that's the logic that makes sense to apply, and that's the logic that I think the literature tends to use, and the literature always comes back, it seems to me, with a pretty dismal record. We never successfully incentivize, almost never, uh, through sanctions alone, other countries to. Uh, uh, come our way, and especially not on major things like nukes, right? That's a major thing of national survival. Um, so uh, I don't know I, the, the, some, m- many of the arguments for sanctions I, I think are pretty weak. And I think you framed the, the paper in this way. like there doesn't seem to be an intellectually coherent and scholarly defense of these sanctions. There's just a policy mess that hasn't helped the situation yeah. at all.
1: That's why. That's why I actually wrote the paper because I was going to conferences for years during the moon period, where we were always hearing about how terrible the sanctions were, and th- you got kind of like lots of op eds and and articles here and there, and like foreign policy or foreign affairs sort of making the bits and pieces of an argument for sanctions. So I tried to kind of draw that together. Sort of what are the kind of
0: right.
1: arguments that we hear for it? Right. I mean, one of the the, the most common argument. I think actually is the one that you sort of, you were sort of criticizing, right? Which is that North Korea is sort of this like horrible Orwellian tyranny, and we should in some way respond to that, um, right? I mean, human rights groups, I think I have some listings for that, right? I mean, human rights groups have repeatedly put North Korea at the bottom. I think North Korea, I think Amnesty once put North Korea, like below Talibanic Afghanistan or something like that, right? Um, and so there, I think there's, you know, if you sort of, if, if you think that like, Western, if you think that that like the foreign policy preferences of the democratic community in the world, like the free world or whatever, should have some kind of moral content, right? Um, then North Korea is the place to start, right? Because North Korea is basically the floor for that, and that's sort of the I think, if I recall, that's the the, the argument that I made in the paper, right? That that if if you sort of if you believe that if you you know without being like a neocon or something like that you know if, if you believe that 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 u.s foreign policy if you believe that western foreign policy democratic foreign policy should have should sort of like concern itself with these kinds of issues at all right you know north korea is one of the very very few one of the one of the countries where it's really hardest to overlook these kinds of things right i mean if we're going to give up on north korea that means we're going to give up on the uyghurs we're going to give up on you know, the, the, the repression in Myanmar and stuff like that. I mean, because North Korea really is sort of at the very bottom, but these are things that sort of pop up all the time in, in Western and, and democratic foreign policy. We worry about these kinds of these kinds of behaviors in states. And I would argue that North Korea is, is if we're gonna talk about this rega- in regard to any country at all, it's probably be North Korea given just how really extreme it is.
0: With regard to regime type, there used to be an argument that was more prevalent about um, imposing sanctions even up to a blockade in the hopes that it would change the regime and that clearly doesn't work we think of cuba of course we still are embargoing that country and there's there's just not a slither of strategic substance to that policy at all and i don't think there is much one with with north korea either the people who say they're concerned on ethical grounds are also the people doing horrible things through us foreign policy elsewhere but also you know it uh, you it actually does uh, undermine the humanitarian health of the country to blockade it and to impose economic warfare on it your paper makes the case that north korean regime is the one to blame that's fine and that's actually correct but it's both things can be true we can also make the humanitarian situation worse and if we're targeting a people uh, an entire people in north korea to not have the benefit of global economic integration I I don't see the the moral consistency whatsoever, but anyways,
1: yeah, I mean that's all in the paper. I mean I don't I th- th- this territory is pretty well known at this point, right? Um, I would argue that that North Korea's own internal governance choices are vastly more important than 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 what we do on the outside, right? I mean if you if you want to argue that sort of like external assistance, aid, access to the world economy, um, you know that, that we carry some kind of like moral burden for that or you know if we cut it off we carry like a moral burden for what happens inside North Korea then you could make sort of the same argument about Soviet assistance um, um, in, in in the 1990s right when the Russians cut that off right um in in like what like 1995 right when, when Yeltsin said we're not going to give the, the North Koreans friendship prices anymore right I and mean, that that kind of helped push North Korea towards towards the famine but nobody blames Moscow for the famine, right?
0: Well, no, I think a lot of people blame the United States for the famine that took place in Iraq in the
1: '90s through through the hefty. Sure, sure, but if, but if your but if your argument, but if your argument is that foreigners have a substantial ability to impact the welfare of countries, right? Then then you know, in, in the North Korean case, you know, we're cutting them off from the world economy and stuff like that, and they can't import enough rice or whatever, right? Then then that actually, that argument actually begins really with the, with the Soviet Union and Russia in 1995, but nobody ever talks about that. Right? nobody blames Russia for the famine but if your argument is that that foreign imports you know are, are crucial for these countries that are the difference between sort of life and death then 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 we should look at Russia but nobody ever makes that argument and I think it's because honestly, I would argue because a lot of it's really politicized the, the argument really is to try to get the Americans to show greater flexibility towards North Korea by pinning nor- humanitarian consequences on Western behavior that are sanctioned behavior that really I don't think can be I I don't think are really sustainable I mean I actually go through and I kind of Fisk line by line, not line by line, but sort of in, in some detail, a big sort of NGO paper in my paper making this argument. I've actually gotten into some debates with the authors on this question, right? And, but even they are willing, they're not actually able to fully argue that the, the the impact is, in fact, really demonstrable, right? I mean, you have constrictions, but, you know, the, the issue is, I, I don't know how far you want to go down this rabbit hole, but, you know, North Koreans spend something like 25% of GDP on defense. And that's why they're starving. I and mean, that's why they're starving, right? Because the elite, you know, w- when, they, when they raise food in the villages, right? The, the local villagers don't get to keep it, right? They got to put it in a silo, which is leaky and old. So there's all this loss, right? And then the army shows up and just takes it. And then maybe later they get some of it back.
0: It seems to me the Biden administration has been very quiet and mum on on, on peninsula politics in general. Um, and I just kind of want to see if you have a sense of where things might be going Like you say, this is a persistently status quo kind of issue. It's a lot of political cost and um, effort to try and make any progress at all. And even then it might fail. So how do you see things going forward?
1: I think the Biden people saw the Trump people get burned. Right. And, you know, we're like, we're not going to do that again. I think more generally, I think American administrations are increasingly like, you know, I don't want to wade into North Korean morass. It's really, really difficult to untangle. Right. The, the, the costs are high. The benefits are low. The possibility of a good sort of outcome is 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 really far off. And, and I'm just not sure if I want to spend my my capital doing that. Um, you know, I, I mean, to a certain extent, I think this is also sort of the case in South Korea, too, right, where South Korea's just like, you know, it's just such a mess and we just don't want to go marching in there. Um, and I think, you know, Biden is just distracted by all these other things, right, you know, COVID and inflation and, and and, and you know, Donald Trump's supporters want to overthrow the government or whatever, and Ukraine and all this kind of stuff. I think Biden's just got a really full plate. And ultimately, you know, I mean, I would argue that, you know, no, ultimately North Korea is really South Korea's mess and South Korea should be taking the lead. I mean, one thing I liked about the Moon administration was that they were like, okay, we're going to like get out in front on this. I didn't think, didn't really care for the policy direction, but I felt like the Moon administration was like, we're going to take ownership for this. Right. I mean, this is one reason why I kind of like Cato. I'm actually kind of a restrainer myself. I'd like to see the US do less. So that's why one of the reasons why Paul and I wrote the piece. I would like to see the US do less. I'd like to see US allies do more. I'd like to see South Korea South Korea sort of take more control of its own foreign policy. This is why I don't really oppose South Korean nuclearization because I'm like, you know, if they want to do it, if if they feel like this is necessary for their security against China and and, and North Korea, then let them make their own choices. We really shouldn't be pushing that on them. Um and I think, yeah, I think the, the Biden people, I think that, I mean, they were, they're pretty traditional liberal internationalists, so I think they would actually like to be a little bit more involved in peninsular issues. I think it's really just a question of them just being overwhelmed. I think the Ukraine war is just sucking up all the bandwidth, right? But but my sense is that that, that the Ukraine has just sort of absorbed everything, right? And, and North Korea, it's always kind of the same, you know, the status quo. North Korea is not evolving, it's not changing, it's not getting any better. It's just the same sort of nasty Orwellian tyranny. It's kind of always been and it's been nuked up for a while and we've been learning to live with that for a while you know as we and i've discussed right i mean we kind of say that we will never accept it but we have in fact adjusted to that and so north korea is a problem that can just report on the back burner um i would you know there's now a south korean conservative president i would like to see the south korean right sort of step up and take this on and and think about what to do instead of sort of looking for us so much um i mean there's i see these these op-eds that show up in korean media every month or something like that. You know, like, where are the Americans on on South Korea, and on North Korea? And I was kind of like, well, you know, what what are you guys going to do, right? I mean, I, I would like to see us sort of behind the South Koreans kind of following their lead and not restricting their range of motion too much. I mean, this is one of the things that happened with Moon, right? I mean, Moon started veering so much that he started colliding with the Americans. But in principle, I think we should give the South Koreans a lot of space to try to figure out what they, how they, how they want to deal with with North Korea. Um, And, and the Moon government, but the, the current government, I think, is is less willing to do that. I think they really want to sort of get the Americans involved because they're really concerned that the moon government put a lot of stress on the American alliance. Um, and that's how they really want to sort of revive that. I think that's why um, President Yoon went to NATO, for example, you know, a couple months ago, because they really want to sort of impress the Americans. Like, you know, we're working together and, you know, Yoon's, Yoon's article in Foreign Affairs when he ran for the presidency was literally like um, South Korea must step up. And he literally was like saying the kinds of things that American hawks want to hear. Um, And and that was explicitly designed to sort of outreach for the United States. And so, um, you know, we're not going anywhere, you know, um, the U.S. and we're going to be here for a while. Um, uh, We we kind of lead policy a little bit, maybe more than we should. But, you know, I mean, we don't really have any good ideas about what to do about North Korea. Right. I mean, we've been talking about this problem for 30 years, North Korean nuclear weapons. I mean, nobody really knows how to fix it. Right. If they did. It would have been tried. So again, the the status quo was just sort of here and durable. Um so you know, we'll be talking about this in a decade. <laughs> Robert E. Kelly,
0: thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for
1: having me.